Welcome to Nameless Debate Radio, where radioactivity is contagious. You can join us in broadening our minds on the Nameless Debates Discord via the link below, and even feature here yourself, if you've got what it takes. And, Mm -hmm. uh, like, I'm not even sure, like, I'm not even sure. Um, well, that's one of the things, uh, like, uh, Joshua was talking a bit about, like, how, how we can kind of notice the state change of being there. And let's, let's just say there is in the transcendent, experiencing a synchronicity, uh, a serendipity, a syzygy, some alignment of information that allows us to perceive significance, at least from our vantage point, subjectively. And then if we start to share that in some way that causes, um, I think what the flow genome project calls group flow, where Mm -hmm. we all start kind of resonating on that same, uh, I hate using the word vibration, but like where we, we get the vibe and everyone's feeling good with it. And it's just like, you're listening to a song that's giving you the goosebumps or something. Yeah. That's a a very hard thing to explain, but, but actually I started earlier. I created the bridge earlier and I created it. I, I brought a little bit of light to the video to the audio recording because in the audio recording you represented a double attitude to the phenomena. Mm. On mm-hmm. the one hand, you knew it was significant. On the other hand, there was this uh uh is this like uh reservation used car salesman or... uh, selling a used car <laughs> here. What the yeah. hell is this, right? And yep. uh I, I want that's right. I, I wanted to bring that up because this this particular the only way to understand it is to understand the phenomenology around it, and and mm-hmm. part of the phenomenal ph- phenomenology around it is this double attitude, which appears. I mean, there is no question that something compulsive happens in people, where uh, they have to boundary the meaning of what they're experiencing. Otherwise, there's a sort of devastating uh, logical effect to the whole uh, structure of how one creates meaning in one's life and what one believes the world really is right mm, yeah and and I, I so I think we do it we boundary it compulsively it's not a rational move and everyone seems to have a different compulsive nature around it mm. Because I don't think it's it, mm-hmm. if you think about it rationally, you as a scientist, you're compelled to say to yourself, okay, uh, yeah, this is anomaly, but this anomaly tells me that everything else means something different, yeah, <laughs> uh, and that's uh, and people don't want to do confronting. that, yeah, very confronting, that's right, yeah, it's very confronting, and so, well, that's what happened to me. I'm I had a very uh, irrational framework, which I was building up brick by brick. And I decided as a teenager, I was just going to uh, uh, move one evidentiary step at a time into the real world. And I wasn't going to be bothered by what anyone else had to say about it, except I was going to listen to what they, what their claims were and uh, see if I could validate. The experiment was, what could I validate through my own evidentiary stream uh, mm-hmm. and i and for one reason or another i felt that was the only way to go because i really didn't feel that other people's stories about religious phenomena uh were trustworthy so mm. so i i i get to, to a certain point in my life where my friends start talking about psi phenomena and uh and i didn't want to uh i mean i actually struggled with this like i didn't mind listening to it but they felt a little apprehensive about the time wasted talking about something that wasn't real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't see that there would be any evidentiary uh, support for some of these ideas for some reason. And it's, it's very naive. I think a lot of people actually mature people actually don't believe for some reason, a priori that there isn't, they don't believe there is an evidentiary stream. And part of it is I think the misdirection of the East where oh, they, yeah. they, begin, they begin always by saying there is a spiritual world out here, but your five senses will not help you. 
And so you got to abandon your senses, which means you got to abandon your empirical attitude. Uh, mm -hmm. Because here's a world that uh, your empirical attitude cannot uh, cope with and will uh, mislead you. Mm. The, the mind, the Leela. I think um, more than anything else, that like one of the problems that I encounter, that kind of thinking, is that like Eastern philosophies tend to uh, not even just accept but promote contradiction. You know, and so like if yeah, the, yeah. yeah. If the correction metric that the West is using is don't contradict yourself, um, you know, when you come up against someone who's like, actually, contradictions are spot on, it's like, all right, well, like, we just fundamentally disagree about that. Yeah. Yeah. So isn't finding the contradiction um, in, the, in the world, like, or, or finding even what contradicts it within your personal self, like, when you meet, that's the confrontation of the contradiction. And when you do that, that's the beginning of the end like that's the beginning of, of discovering because once you learn to resolve the paradox um through that's right you know so through adjusting your altitude and, and adjusting your cognitive development to wrap your mind around two conflicting positions that's when you realize that it's not a dichotomy and that it is just one um one thing two sides of the same coin do, do you relate to that yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly what it yeah, is. So, for sure, uh, uh, my my although, position, although. my my position is that uh, synchronicity is one of those things where, mm -hmm. if you brace yourself and start thinking about it, um, it will open a door to another world. Mm -hmm. But if you trivialize it and make it and uh, leave it as an anomaly that you can't make heads or tails of. It can, uh, I think, slow progress down. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah. And that's what yeah. most people do in one way or another. Now, the reason I think this is actually very, very important is because the phenomenology of synchronicity most probably, almost certainly, is related to uh, people's idea, religious ideas. So mm -hmm. the history of uh, Western religion is, is connected to this phenomenology and if it is, I mean, that's just a supposition as you approach it. You go, wait a minute, maybe? Uh, and it's a, an intuition a lot of people have. It's not like I'm, I'm uh, this brilliant person who imagines this. A lot of people have it. It's actually the first thing they think. They go, yeah. wait a minute, this experience, this tells me that maybe this is what other people have been talking about, that I, my <laughs> rational mind when I was younger just couldn't even uh, create a space for. And mm -hmm. here it is. This is what contextualize it. Right. Yeah, but and but part of you, I think, in a lot of, with a lot of people, immediately there's a compulsive feeling like oh, that can't be true. That 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 would be just uh, that would make this too weird. So you immediately dampen that idea. But uh, at least I did for a long time until I started to see that there was a whole evidentiary historical trace that pointed to this fact. Actually, right. so. so because it's what you think with what we know about the universe, but then we include that and transcend and include that into our conception of the universe, and then we we do tend to look for support. Like, where else does this exist? I can't. It can't just be an anomaly. And then you see these religious practices who have a long history of these experiences uh, mixed in with a whole other you know bunch of crap. But, um, you know, but then there's, you know, there is a long history of this. And then you, you, you exactly. kind of feel uh, maybe a bit comforted and maybe then you can learn the skills. Maybe there is a skill to this. Mm -hmm. That's right. To, to achieving this um, process. And one question I had for, for you, you, Joshua, and probably the rest of you as well, is do you believe that this is an emergent property that is that the, the result uh, or the impact is more than the sum of the parts? Uh, no, I don't. Well, more than the sum of, a part of the parts is a very general idea. And what it means is that what you're saying is that uh, the individual and the universe have some sort of uh, dynamic, almost as though you're implying that our existence is an existence in a space-time continuum. And uh, surprise, surprise, it's true. We, we actually do exist in a continuum. When people say the word, they don't actually understand what it means. 
And to live in a space-time continuum is to live in a constant uh, uh, a synchronistic state where time, <laughs> matter, and this is the part that I think Matthew both agrees with and has trouble with. Uh, the third one is information. Uh, but information, I would take it, I would take it, uh, there's a certain danger with the term information. I, I agree with it, but there's a certain risk with it. And the risk is I would ratchet up to metaphor. So rather than just say information, metaphor. And that's the thing. That metaphor is information that has been analyzed and translated. Would you, would you agree to that? No, metaphor, metaphor is information is it takes information from just a kind of data, let's say a, a step up, from, an octave up from just data and logic mm. to elegance and structure. Now, you can still argue mm. that's data mm. and logic. General, generalization. Starting to look, it's starting to look like a, a one order up from it, where now we're not just talking about data and logic, we're talking about pattern. Mm. Isn't that? Mm. Isn't metaphor closer to like an analogical representation, though? Um, you see, the thing is, is I go from the experience out, and from if you go from the experience out, the way I describe it to people, because I I just describe it as my own experience. Part of my my work as a philosopher, or the promise to myself was, if I do discover something, I want to be able to tell other people what I discovered, and of course. And, and if, if, I, if, if there's a certain path where I go down it, I won't be able to tell anyone. I actually uh, uh, regard that as not being my path. Uh, I, I want to take the path where I can actually tell it. Uh, so uh -huh. I've, always, I've always insisted on um, being able to project or as articulately as I can uh, what it is I've seen or what it is I think is going on or, or how it is I cope with it. So it began okay. with... It began with really loving Shakespeare. Like Shakespeare really turned me on. It got me into the belief that writing activity, uh, mainly Hamlet, but, uh, and also T.S. Eliot. Um, the Wasteland. People, yes, exactly. Uh, especially The Wasteland. Uh, and so okay. from, from these, I got this romantic idea of like omens and, uh, and signs and uh, this idea around, which is a literary idea, and I approached it from a literary point of view, uh, mm -hmm. uh, foreshadowing. You know, that seemed like a really interesting uh, literary idea. So I was picking up these literary ideas, and, and slowly but surely, I, I started paying attention to movies and noticed that these literary ideas appeared in movies as well, which mm -hmm. made sense to me since a lot of these movies are, are based on books. And then as I, as I became, as I got closer and closer to this, I would say, synchronistic perspective, I noticed one very annoying uh, a feature of my interpretive experience of the world, and that it was, it was starting to appear very literary to me. And there were things like omens. I went, fuck that, what? <laughs> That's a little fucking scary. And then there were things like foreshadowing. And then there were things like, little subtle metaphorical plays that were symbols of bigger metaphorical plays that were to come. That's fucked up. You know, that's just the term, oh my, literary term synecdoche. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that is exactly what I'm talking about. And that's like, almost like this idea or the synchronistic, synchronistic idea to the level where it's almost like a nightmare, which you can barely stand to experience. Where, where the uh, part represents the clarify. Could you just clarify what the word means? It, it's where the, the individual represents the whole or a part represents the, the whole. And so it's kind of like a, a hologram. Um, oh, okay. Yep. Where, so like uh, fractal, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, I've heard it pronounced synodochi, but I, I could be mistaken. Uh, it, it, it is uh, synecdoche. Uh, synecdoche, okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, Matthew brings something interesting up and I want to include it because it's an important part of it. Part of the pattern and elegance of the synchronistic experience is that it's got a fractal quality. There's no question one experiences this uh, fractal elegance and what it is is logic that seems to be coherent across scopes of scale. Right. So that, mm -hmm. 
so that uh, at every scope somehow there's a, a set of logical relationships that make that gives you the sense that you're living in this um, very complex uh, uh, set of uh, codes or puzzles that are, are working together like, like a sort of clockwork of heaven right. this clockwork of heaven um, seems to uh, have its own operations in its scope and yet it's a fragment of the scope above it and that logic mm. seems to continue on as far as we can mm -hmm. see in the macrosphere and as far as we can see in the microsphere yeah. okay. so, when you start having the sensation like oh i remember this that's when it gets freaky you know what i mean mm -hmm. where of instead course, of yeah. like i know this i know this from a previous persona like i know this from a previous form and, yes. and and then I remember, you know, that's when it's like, yeah. you know, holy shit, like so we're on to something here, you know? That's the other part of it. And the other part of it is that part of this part of this synchronistic awakening is that uh you, you were you were suddenly as I wouldn't say master, but you suddenly you had some sense of your own the territory of your own life. Uh, and then immediately the time question opens up and the territory of your life seems much vaster. And mm -hmm. your problem seems to have been part of a vast problem. Um, and then, well, you can, is this all projection? Of course it's not. Uh, and you know that to some degree, all of the experiences you're having, having must be embodied logically in the universe. So it, it's not like you're inventing a scenario that you know is not true. You know that the scenario is logically there, uh, but it doesn't make sense to you that it would be observable. I think you're right, Joshua. I, th I think that we also have to be open to the idea that it is uh, our projection because to know the difference between a hallucination and sober, exactly. whatever you want to call that, it, I can't tell. Exactly, but this is my point. It wouldn't, my point it wouldn't is, be a hallucination. It wouldn't be an illusion unless it actually worked to trick us. And so, like, we are the, at least we believe that we are the authority to determine reality from fiction. But the reality is that fiction is also real. It's just real on a different plane. And so <laughs> the, the fiction can tell us more about reality than the sober reality if that's a terrible way of thinking about it though because <laughs> yeah, it's a right. way of de denying its reality in order to cope with it which i you know this comes back to but we don't if know. we believe that it's the projector that's creating the projection mm -hmm. and i think all of us do here mm -hmm. uh, and brendan you're the one who's bringing this the up the projector is in the subject that's right so, i don't yeah i don't believe that uh well, I've heard you say that, so maybe we're we're not. I think that we're picking up words. That, that our what, what, what I mean, what I mean is, is that the. Oh, oh, I know which. Uh, I'm not saying that it, the the uh, projection is, is absolutely the subjective projector. What I'm saying is that there is an aspect of the projection that's a function of the subject. Oh yes, I would definitely agree to that. Yeah, yeah, we all agree um, to that. But, I think um, that our what we were just talking about um, before was spookily reminiscent of uh, Plato's theory of recollection. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Plato understood this material, so he was I would say he was involved in the. I, I would say that Plato understood synchronicity, and play, the, uh, one of the things I would say, and I know this is uh, it might be shocking to some of you, but it might make sense. I, one of the reasons I often say that people don't really understand the allegory of the cave is because he's actually describing the synchronistic experience. That's what he's he's talking to people about, and uh, and, and so that's what it, he's actually talking about something real. This is not an allegory about how when we have a discussion, someone doesn't understand us, and if you know all of that, he's actually talking about he discovered, uh, uh, he experienced realized to some degree lived through a, a quality of being human i just regard it as, as a sort of human destiny or sort of lost understanding mm -hmm. I, I don't know if we ever had it but it has a lost quality because it's always there and we never we never occupy it you at least one way of looking at it so surely though 
Yeah. Surely, though, you would say that um, even if the allegory of the cave is what you say it is, it's also um, an analysis of epistemology. Right. Like, it, yes. it would have to be. Yes. Well, it would have okay. to be. That's, that's the way I would say it. It would have to be because he's dealing both with the problem. Well, first, he's dealing with the epistemological problem of being in the real world. And it appears as though he managed that. Uh, and this is a rare accomplishment, and only a few people seem to be able to do it. And I, uh, uh, to some degree, I know because I've experienced it to to one degree or another. And and because I have, I know it's real. And so the question is, how do you get closer to it? How do you make it happen? How do you bring yourself there? And and what kind of training do you need to occupy it in any successful way? And it, and it turns out that the the Buddhist tradition is probably the best training for that kind of thing. And I regard that as not a coincidence. So the thing that I discovered from, from actually learning to occupy the space, so uh, the skill of, let's say, what, uh, uh, stalking synchronicity, mm -hmm. I learned that I actually, it was an avenue for understanding a, a number of different traditions. And... Okay. To some degree, I regard it as a scientific way of examining these traditions. Um, and what I like about Matthew's approach is he does like to take a step-by-step -step, uh, yeah. uh, 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 approach into it. And I like to, too, because that my belief has been and my strategy has been take one careful step at a time towards it and, and stop going in a loop. So one of the things I would say to Brendan is, there's a loop that you're probably going going to, and, it, and this again, this com compulsive loop. And the loop is to keep bringing to your mind that this may be an hallucination, this may not be real, right? And I just think that one just gets in the way. You gotta at some point say, okay, there's something here that's real, and now the only question is, what is it? And uh -huh. and because this the quality, there's a quality to this reality which happens to challenge the scientific tradition. And I, I don't think that's a problem. It's just uh, it's a part of the problem space that uh, many people don't want to accept. And that is the, the subject is very much, and even the nature of the group of subjects is part of the problem. So, uh, so uh, my we're part of the measurement at the very least, and we can't just- No, no, it's part, it's part of the general, because, what, it, what synchronicity is, is a resonance chamber. And so if the resonance is wrong, it doesn't resonate. That's just right. part, that's just one way of saying it, but that is what it is. And so if, if, if two people are together and they don't resonate, it's not going to happen there. And if it's, and to be honest with you, if it's happening for me and someone who I don't resonate with comes into my space, it immediately brings it right down. Yeah, I can't. I can't even. Uh, uh, Sounds almost it. pointed that remark. Yeah. Is that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It really wasn't. Uh, but to be honest, but what a happy coincidence. But what? A, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how this. It, it, the the reason. The I think the the deeper reason why that was going on is not so much. Uh, well, maybe it's partly a function of my will to make certain things happen, which probably is, uh, you know, that's part of my mischievous nature. But I, I, I sort of have an impatient quality sometimes around. Yeah, I definitely got that feel. <laughs> <laughs> and it's because that's because definitely it's definitely the, the behavior that I see myself exhibit when I've run out of patience. <laughs> yeah, it takes one to know one. It's universal. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the thing is. I, I think both Matthew and I, I know for sure, love the progress part of it. I don't like the, to see pro, the progress be, uh, what's the word? Uh, forestalled? Uh, yeah, forestalled, oh. sabotaged for Diaper. nonsense. Labor, right. That, Occam's razor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yep. But I, I actually didn't think it would happen this way. But the, there is one problem, and I really do think, and it comes back to the synchronicity thing. And I know it sounds like a wild claim. And, and I talk epistemology for a while, for a bit. I, What's I that? Wanna, can, can I talk about uh, epistemology a bit? Um, of so course. I, uh, 
I like John Locke, what John Locke's view was. And it was at some point we must believe or trust. And so he's, you know, pure empiricist, you know, coming yeah. off the back of Descartes, like complete rejection of mentalism. Yeah. Um, and, and so believed, you know, that the exterior world was, was real. And so he said at some point we must tr believe that our sense perceptions are, are picking up on or observing uh, an, an exterior world that we cannot validate except through other sense perceptions. So this is why I remain, I have, I have a healthy, I think a healthy level of agnosticism about my perceptions, but I also... I know, but, but that, that idea was actually wrong. Well, hold on there. Because what I also do is I t I'm okay with that. I'm okay with them being wrong, and I'm okay with them just being illusions. Because the work, the process, is to extract um, wisdom or impact um, that can be generalized from those uh, perceptions. Because I can have a hallucination that is by all uh, accounts that we can can come up with. Uh, you know, have, you know, peer review or whatever that to say that, yes, that was a hallucination, but I can extract impact from that. Like I've misheard songs, particularly Radiohead songs, misheard the lyrics and be like, wow, that's so profound. Or you go to an art gallery and you look at that painting, like, oh, I see this thing and, and it's really meaningful. And, 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 and then go in and like really change your life around because of what you saw in that painting. And then you go like to the, to the to the painter and they're like yeah i don't know i was just throwing paint on the canvas you know mm -hmm. what i mean well no you never mm -hmm. trust a painter as that just sounds <laughs> well, of course you're right. yeah, the it's like of you're the looking matter. for something that you don't know is there well no well no the person doing it found first. something that wasn't there so it's whether you're but, looking but for is it, it not, the case that it's not there or uh, is it the case well, that it's always nobody there. knew it was there it's always there it's well only, i am a painter i am a painter it's not there unless you've observed it or mm, I'm not sure if I agree with that on an then, epistemological yeah, level. So, so if it is there, uh, without it's been terrible epistemology. It's been terrible epistemology since Brendan started talking there. And, and I don't mean, I don't mean to be rude when I say that, but it, it there, there is this moment where uh, I was talking about the, how the projector is uh, uh, projecting their interpretation, right? So in, uh, with Brendan, I have to say, you're projecting an interpretation and you're projecting an interpretation even on the dialogue. So it's like a habit. It's like a form of music. It's like so a then, music that you're making. And my it's question in, for you would yeah. be, what, what is metaphor in your opinion? What is the metaphor? No, what is metaphor generally? Oh, um, well, it what it is is uh, we're in a we're in a, a phenomenological process that's billions of years old, and what I suspect is is that there have been many self-emergent properties that have uh, uh, organized themselves uh, in 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 this existence. I don't, I'm not making any propositions about how it began or what it is. All I know is that, that there, is, there does appear to be a tremendous amount of organization in the world before I came to it. I came into a very organized world that uh, was much more organized than I suspected. So as a child, I had no idea how organized it was, and I wouldn't have believed it, and I think it would have overwhelmed me. I don't think I wanted to know uh, okay. at, at a certain so point. Are you saying so, then that metaphor is the phenomenological apprehension of the uh, fractal order of the world? Yeah, yeah, yes, I, yeah. I would say that. Very good. Okay, I, I'd probably accept that. Um, okay, so here's the thing, though. Here's mm -hmm. the thing about the synchronistic experience. So now, now I'm getting into like wild territory, but it's something to consider, and it, and, it, and it comes back to some of the things that Rupert Sheldrake says. Uh, are you guys familiar with Rupert? I am, yeah. yeah. Are you, Matthew? Morphic, morphic resonance. Yeah, uh, I am, yeah. So, so like, uh, he talks about the 10 rules, the 10 laws of science, or the 10 assumptions of science. And um, they uh, 
sorry, it, uh, an event just occurred in my life here, and I'm just taking that in. <laughs> so it and it's synchronicity to tell you the truth uh, that's the other part of the hilarious aspect of it um but uh what he says is you know we like to think about the laws of nature as being uh consistent to, as coherent but one of our so our assumptions are they don't they don't transform they don't change that's one of the interesting ideas he he projects and I keep that in mind as I describe this particular conundrum. So Jung uh, uh, tries to get his, wrap his mind around synchronicity, right? And uh, uh, as he's trying to wrap his mind around synchronicity, or maybe the, it should be the other way around, it's Pauli, who is this quantum physicist, who's trying to wrap his mind around uh, certain physical phenomena, trying to create mm -hmm. a model for it. So uh, Pauli is dealing with quantum physics, and there he's dealing with time in this very, very fragile and sensitive way, and he's also dealing Neutrino with way, physics. Right? Yeah, so um, uh, in science, this whole conundrum appears through the quantum physics framework, right? But uh, the interesting synchronicity is Pauli is here talking to Jung, and both of them are trying to figure out how this could possibly make sense. And Jung's at first move, I think it's a bad move because it, it again is a compulsive way to avoid the problem. It's just as to regard it as a causal phenomena. But when he talks about it as being a causal, he describes it as um, uh, he describes it as it appearing to be causal, but not possibly causal. Mm -hmm. That's what he means by a causal, uh, but he yep. he's but the, the the problem is is that there does appear to be an unexplainable uh, causal nature um, to it. Which, are you sure it's unexplainable though? I don't think it's unexplainable. I think it is explainable, but uh, but is is it causal or is it a causal? It's I've it's causal in a different framework. So, so is uh, it is in in the um, ontological sense? Is it causal or a causal? I would say it's causal. Causal. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I I I think that just that the paradigm that Jung is thinking of the real world in uh, the only way you resolve the paradox is by calling it a causal. I think that's not a good resolution if you believe that the uh, the universe is coherent, and that's always my first assumption. Something. Uh, truly remarkable has to happen for me to not to believe that nothing's ever contradicted that uh, first principle, and I, I doubt anything ever will. And mm -hmm. so then the question is, is to look for uh, what's the framework? What's the logical framework that mm -hmm. this phenomena could be happening? Yes. Happening in. It so the, the, here's one very very interesting. Uh, yeah, I love to follow uh, almost like literary motifs. So when you read Jung, you'll notice he has two competing theories of the uh, nature of synchronicity. And th this is what makes it really fucking fascinating. Because I, I also had these two competing theories, and I, I went back and forth, almost like a cognitive dissonance between the two. Hmm. And one of them is that synchronicity only happens in these key moments, right? These key, these at a certain time, on a certain day, everything lines up. And all around him appears that his existence is pure metaphor, and he's existing as a pure metaphorical, exist metaphorical existence in this pure metaphorical existence. And then he goes, well, it only happens in these moments. Other times, it's not happening. And then he goes, this, is a, this appears to be a very, uh, like me as well, this appears to be a very doubtful uh, framework. Like, what am I saying? That only... In this moment, the, the whole universe line up this way, and every all the other times, it's it's not. The the likely, the more likely possibility is that it's always happening. So then he goes, in other times he goes, I suspect that it may be that it's always happening, and it's only at certain times that we are capable of seeing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you see the interesting uh, uh, binary this creates? And I think the solution is a solution that includes both realities, that something does actually change. 
during uh, this this. What does that mean, though? Like, what does it mean to say that something does actually change? Oh, uh, which with the rules. Here's here's my here's my dramatic wild claim. It almost seems that to some degree, to a certain degree, in the locality you're in, uh, the rules of nature change, or the laws of nature change. Or that you're suddenly you're in, an, you're in a higher octave of the laws of nature where mm. what were laws before seem a little more fluid than they were before. We can outgrow the laws of nature as we previously understood them. And that's outgrowing them means resolving them to where uh, what may at one point be an issue. Like, like having a law against theft only matters if you have the proclivity or the temptation to, to thieve. And mm-hmm. as soon as you outgrow that and, and you become mature to where like, and, and, and secure, mature and secure, where you don't need to, to steal and you don't have that temptation, that kind of ceases to be a law. And so that, that's a rudimentary example of, of, of how laws, and that, of course that's a, that's a human imposition on nature, but um, I think that it also is consistent within the laws of nature um, to, to... I think really... that's an, um, it's an interesting one because I don't think that people actually do steal because they need to. Most of the time, people steal for the rush. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, so there's mature and then secure. So I, I started, mm-hmm. I said okay, mature. Okay, fair enough. Um, so if they mm-hmm. could learn to convert that, that rush into a... How do we get to fucking stealing? What's that? Sorry, what's that? I was wondering how we got to stealing. Using it as an example to show how we can out, how we outgrow uh, laws. And uh, okay, but that seems to conflate. That, that, that is, seems that to is conflate. what I'm talking about. Wait, wait a minute. Actually. Wait a minute though. I feel like that conflates the law as in a subjective representation of a rule and the rule itself, right? Mm-hmm. Because the laws of nature, we call yeah. them laws because we're subjectively representing them. But what we mean when we say the law of nature is not something similar to what we mean when we say a law of society. Because laws of society can be broken and laws of nature cannot. I preface by saying that, by by saying that the the human constructed law is different than the natural law, but but went ahead with the the analogy. And, And so, but I think like, so for instance, gravity, the law of gravity, but we have, Mm-hmm. Outgrown, we haven't necessarily outgrown gravity, but we've learned ways to build flying machines and ways to to work through it or around it. Um, transcend it. Um, or rather, actually work with it. Transcending it. It's not work trans- with it, yeah. Um, because if you think about the way that our uh, like spacecraft work, to a large degree, it is not that we outwit gravity, but rather that we harness it. Right, yeah. Yeah, so that's what that's right. what I mean by redirecting that force from uh, uh, something that's that's less healthy to something that's more healthy, more whole. Sublimate. Sublimate. Yeah, but but mm-hmm. that's where the, that's where the transcendence comes in. So once you've learned how to successfully do that, you resolve the contradictions, and and it's no longer um, a part mm-hmm. of reality. I mean, it's no longer part of your reality. Mm-hmm. And and then on a, on a larger level of the laws of nature, you you're really distilling what is the immutable law of nature, or is the the law of nature dynamic and move with our challenging of it? You know. Okay. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Can't think, so, I can't not agree with that. But you know, the the oh, what am I? I I just want to. Uh, I don't agree with or disagree with it. it was a suggestion. Hmm. It was like a. This, um, no, I know, this but might, this might be stepping backwards a touch, but I didn't really grasp why exactly um, yeah. you didn't accept uh, a causality, right? You said that Young believed that the world was a causal. Um, I'm not too sure why you disagree. Well, because it's. Uh, oh, I guess my my argument is more terminological like when people um hear about synchronicity as being a causal it gives them license in their mind not to confront the causal nature of it or the interactive um, nature maybe is that necessarily true or is that just no, like no, a human it, it has, 
Well, it's a human proclivity, and I think the yes. human pr proclivity. So this is why I keep talking about compul compulsion. And actually, I, I actually, I know this might sound strange uh, to you guys, but I hear it in Brendan to some degree, and and it's this um, this feeling that we need to contain this with a rational, uh, I don't know. Uh, dampening uh you know it's almost like you need to put some insulation on the wall so that the echoes don't resonate and uh, and you can actually hear it as an actual experience in us talking about it so like even talking about it you have to be prepared for the for the fact that it becomes meta metaphorical the actual talking about it is metaphorical it's part of the odd strange uh quality of it now you might you might believe i'm projecting it but then the question will be as you continue to observe our discussions as we approach it, is is am I creating the fact that it's metaphorical, or is that as we talk about it, everybody takes a, 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 a deeply metaphorical relationship to it that their egos are not in control of, and that's partly what happened with Dave. Hmm. So, like, I would definitely hmm. agree that like there's a metaphorical in in the sense that I uh, define. What you meant by metaphorical before there's definitely like yeah. a strong metaphorical component um yeah. i think the mm -hmm. the relevant question for me is like what is that like why is that how is that why is there a metaphor yeah, a why question. is there not nothing right no i i think the way you build up the problem is archetypally correct the way the 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 something nothing discourse you have i actually had it myself as well and i came to pretty well the same conclusions uh, i used to write about zero a lot so the mm -hmm. uh, the fact that there's something means right away that you know that regardless of uh what we think it is and regardless of our misconceptions something's still happening and that means there's a, a challenge for skill and it may be true that you develop skill and you find that there's nothing there, but that isn't the case. And you can almost guess intuitively that it's not going to be the case. So the nihilist position is just ridiculous. Literally nonsensical. And by the Literally nonsensical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's a position such that it could not be sensible. Exactly. And it and almost holds which, that as virtue. What's shocking is that it's popular. So... It, that may, and this is popular among very intelligent people, which again comes back to my argument that there's something compulsive here. There's something compulsive that doesn't want to deal with the scope of uh, the truth before us. Just doesn't want to. We like stability, right? What's that? You know, we like stability, right? So like when yeah. we're dealing with the world... Um, you know, in its entirety, we are in an unknown land. We, we exactly. you know, nothing, nothing about the environment is stable at that point. It's uncomfortable. That's exactly. Yeah. And so, y'all making fun of nihilists. <laughs> well, it's actually it's so it's shocking to me that it actually became more popular as I as I was doing my philosophical work. I. Every once in a while, I look at the culture. I go, "Really? You gotta be kidding!" And then I go, "Well, well this yeah, is gonna no. pass." I, I keep going, "This is gonna pass. This is just like it will pass. pass. It will pass. We can survive it. It will pass." You mean the people who it attracts? Well, it's gotten a little crazy now. Now, now it's it's become to me a little surreal. Mainstream. And, uh, well. What we're playing out, the the whole philosophical, like it's just like a bad philosophical argument, like a, a teenage, uh, an adolescent philosophical argument in the mm -hmm. first place. And it appears to be uh, uh, moving towards being played out in dramatic ways. And now I'm going, this is what it was like when I people mean, were watching World War II unfold. They're going, fuck, this is crazy, but it's going to happen. <laughs> Nihilism is equivalent to an intellectual pout, though, right? Intellectual yeah. what? Pout. An intellectual pout. Pout? Mm -hmm. Yes, is it uh, yeah, the yeah. sour yeah. face that a child pulls? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I guess it is. Uh, I guess that's. Oh, you're saying because um, they're like, I don't understand it, so poof. Yeah, so it cannot be understood, essentially, yes. Mm. Yeah.
I mean, there's nothing saying that we can't believe. Well, there's we there's a reason for it. For it. That's, that's, I mean, nihilism is more the belief that there's not a point for anything. Uh, no, actually, there's two distinct types of nihilism. One is epistemological nihilism, which is the proposition that there is nothing that's true. And then there's existential nihilism, which is the proposition that there is nothing that is significant. Oh. Well, uh, no, I think things can be significant. I just think... It's harder to argue against the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would say that like I, things, things are subjectively significant, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us that they're not objectively significant because significance is a subjective construct. No, yeah, That's it depends right. on what you count as significant. Because only, no, well, you know, you can only be significant if it's significant to something, and that no, requires it being relationship. Unless yeah, you're talking I about think, objective uh, level. Have you guys heard Nora McDonald's version of this of this conundrum? It's pretty funny. He's a comedian, and he actually means it pretty seriously. So. He starts with going like, well, you know what infinity is? And I actually object to the, the idea of infinity. In the oh, first my place. God. So, I love good, that man. you said that. <laughs> I constantly rail on about how infinity makes no sense. Yeah. Well, he begins it's ridiculous, with, man. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, this is the best argument because it's the insignificant what, argument. Which infinity? Are you talking about so a left with, uh, No, no, no. Any, well, technically mathematical infinity. Is that, is that whole yeah. numbers? Or are you talking like a left null, which is like in between zero no, and no, one? No, no, no. I'm saying that there is such a thing as the mathematical objects that we have labeled as infinity, but they're more properly called endless sets. Right, and yeah. infinity couldn't make any sense because if we're talking about infinity in mathematical terms, right, then we're talking about an infinite number. And then a quick, a small translation on that gives us this, an infinite finitude. And like, do I need to go any further? Not really. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, he says, well, any significant thing you do compared to infinity is zero. Mm. <laughs> Therefore... <Yeah. laughs> Therefore, anything you do is meaningless. <laughs> it's a good joke, actually. It is, actually. <laughs> the problem well, is... No, he's, using the sheer he's, fact he's already believes this, it. As, as a, a point to be pouty about life, I guess. Yeah, in a way, it seems like, <laughs> like he's, he's trying to point out the absurdity of actions. So, like, yeah. uh, move into inactivity and somehow uh, Albert infinity justifies it. <laughs> I don't, I'm, not, I'm not the type of nihilist that just sits down and goes, I'm not going to do anything because there's no point to anything. I'm just going to sit in my fucking parents' basement and do nothing. Um, is there yeah. another type of nihilist? Like, if, yeah, if you're not that type of nihilist, well, then you're inconsistent. I kind of, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm not a nihilist. Yeah, there is an aspect to nihilism. Maybe I don't know the definition of the words good enough, and I'm willing to accept that I might be ignorant to well, uh, my own philosophical I, outlook. Mm -hmm. What I would say, though, is that if you do things, you cannot genuinely hold the proposition that nothing is significant, because otherwise, why would you do anything? Yeah. Yeah. So perform chemical releases in my brain that make me happy. Then, then you, then you, like, hold those things to be significant. Well, I mean, exactly. I can understand that I'm, I get happy because my brain releases dopamine. No, no, but I'm saying, like, that, if... That make if, me if, happy. Yeah, if those chemical releases matter to you, then something matters to you. Yeah. Yep. And if it matters to do the things that provide that result, then it also also doesn't does matter to a significant amount. Well, I guess. No, but that's irrelevant. You like the fact that you're going to say it doesn't matter objectively is like a non sequitur. That's completely beside the point. You can't really mm -hmm. say nothing matters objectively because there's nothing really. Well, then objective. what are you saying? That's the question. What are you saying then? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. no, saying that nothing has any objective value is is a little retarded because there's no really such thing as of course objective but that's exactly knowledge. what that that's what um existential nihilism is right so uh, albert camus had the idea that you know once you realize life is absurd meaning there's no objective value the only question is how not not if or or when but how are you going to commit suicide hmm. <laughs> But I think again, yeah, like you know, they, conflated epistemological nihilism and existential nihilism. He goes, so there's no um, significance to life, therefore there's no um, like there is no meaning. Full stop. And I don't think that that's actually accurate. I, I am not completely dead. Like to the world is not. I don't think absurd. that makes me a nihilist. It, no, it I, may seem absurd, but it ultimately isn't. Right. 
I, the, I, I think it's even more complicated than that. And that is that many people, and this is why I brought up at the very beginning of the conversation, Eddie's double-sided view of it, where on one level, it's, uh, you know, a, a sham, it's snake oil. On another level, it's something real that is a kind of like dais for exploration. Uh, and even just getting some sort of verbal understanding of it, because uh, the other the other thing the other claim uh, I would make is that alchemy was all about preparing the individual for that experience, and that this experience was fairly well understood in Sumerian culture, and it was part of the initiation of the king. And uh, there were good reasons for why they felt that uh, a king had to have that kind of knowledge. Now, I, I'm pretty sure they knew that this was rare phenomena, but I think they actually had a system for repeating it to some degree. And, and much of Western, the origins and the foundation of Western religion and Western culture are little glints of that uh, uh, process that initiation that broken telephone set of ideas like i don't think anybody knows anymore um i th i think it was that whatever that was that a great deal of it has been destroyed and um misunderstood but I, one of my little favorite games over the years is trying to piece it back together again and also mm -hmm. taking a an experiential view on the matter. So uh, at the same time uh, that I'm researching how uh, these people uh, sorted this problem out, I'm also trying to figure out in, in real time um, the problem myself. And like the people I would point to that I believe, there's a number of philosophers that I believe were like very close to understanding it or understood it. And uh, one of them is Empedocles, uh, no question. Um, and he, he represents, like much of what we know as new age today comes back to that guy. And mm. uh, the other one is Heraclitus. Uh, those two, I think oh. are very important. Interesting. And, Cause I would say actually that Plato and Parmenides were very close to understanding the world. And there's, I think there's a, I think we well, need to make know, a distinction here, right? We need to say like one is an understanding of the subjective world and one is an understanding of the objective world. And yeah. I would say that when it comes to the phenomenological experience, you're perfectly justified in claiming that everything is change. But if that's the case, then change is unchanging. Hmm. What's the objective world? No, he, he knew that. He knew that. He actually has a, a, a a statement about stepping into the river that uh, incorporates both the same those polarities. Some people claim, and I'm one of them, I, I, I think it's a reasonable claim that Heraclitus is the first person to actually start writing about quantum mechanics, that to some degree, mm -hmm. his ideas are reflections of that awareness. You mm -hmm. have to ask yourself, how could that even be possible? And it comes back to the synchronicity thing. And, and what, I, what I'm suggesting that in, in the synchronicity phenomenology, the experience of the collapse of the waveform like actually tangibly happens uh, unmistakably. So like at first I went, no. Unmistakably? Uh, on to some degree, over time, it has become a, a forced reality on my mind that actually yes, what's going on. Is that an appropriate word? Unmistakably? Yeah, well, that's probably yes. a too too big a claim, maybe. Mm -hmm. Probably, but, probably, but but maybe not too. That's the thing. yeah, ma uh, maybe not. But I just mean, if you have to say maybe, then you default to probably. It's not unmistakably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm leaning in that direction mm -hmm. uh, uh, more and more at this point because, in my own mind, you know how we 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 both. Uh, came to the conclusion that we can't actually rationalize the phenomenology of synchronicity. Like, there, it always remains. Like, what the fuck? How how do I include this in my idea mm -hmm. of the world? And uh, the only way that I can s satisfy all of my 
experiential concerns, like all the facts of my experience, is with a collapse of the waveform model. And, and that model means, and, and, and so this would be the, uh, this is, would be what I mean, that in some way it's as though the universe is an equation, not just information, but an equation that collapses every moment that includes uh, every fact of every part of it. And hmm. I know that's a tough one. Does it that's have to collapse? The only... It's the hologram again. Well, yeah, does it have to collapse? Here's the thing. We do have a little probably difference of opinion on the multiverse universe mm -hmm. question, but maybe not. It all depends on how, uh, uh, how you see it. I, I, I think I contextualize it a slightly different way. And I wanted to bring this up, so I'm glad, I'm glad it came up. I think it does collapse, but your subjective understanding of what that collapse is is not necessarily what that collapse is. And mm -hmm. that uh, your subjective understanding of that collapse changes the nature of your experience of the collapse as though it was a different collapse. So now there is a multiverse. There is the logic of the reality continuing to play. And then there's a logic that you created from your projections continuing to play. So now it's a double life to some degree. I feel like though implicit in the implicit in the first proposition um, is the acknowledgement of the fact that maybe it doesn't collapse at all. Uh, I think the problem with the maybe it doesn't collapse at all uh, never actually agreed with me, but it's probably an argument that the nihilists would like to use once once they give up the other uh, uh, problems, they'll probably come to that one. So that's why I intuitively maybe. go, oh no, if they if you're gonna claim that it maybe it doesn't collapse, you're gonna claim that maybe nothing happens. And then I No, go, but actually I'm I'm claiming the opposite. I'm claiming that because everything happens, it never needs to collapse. Like a Akashic record. Oh, here's the thing. Here's where So what I have to do is go you have to ex imagine that the phenomenology that I've experienced may be different than the phenomenology you've experienced. So that's like one claim I'm going to right? Mm -hmm. And that means that um, uh, we, we come back to this notion of uh, uh, laws of nature, right? Like things happening that don't make sense, but they're happening, right? Well, they don't make sense to us, but yeah. They right. don't make sense to us, uh, or are they... They're not making sense to me, but it's happening. Yeah, I think that's I'm an important distinction, up. though. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. right, yeah, like, I feel like in the, second, in the second statement when we say, but it is happening, what we are saying is that it makes sense. It's just that we don't know how to make sense of it. That's right. It, it's a fact of your life, but uh, you, you don't know how, in what framework, all these facts can, can be together. So there's a compulsive... Uh, a force not to deal with the problem. And I, I want to, I, I don't want to be spending like a, a year just dancing around that. Part of me wants to get into the need of it. If mm -hmm. it's possible. See where that, where, where it get, we get to the point where we can no longer speak about it because nobody has any knowledge that uh, will take us any further. Now here's, here's an interesting story and I, it's going to be a strange story. So the, the truth is if I, uh, yeah, you know, there are some strange stories that I could tell, but uh, and I'm I'm reluctant to tell them because I also uh, have a model for how another person would have to logically make it make sense to them, right? That's and that's part of the problem of the allegory of the cave. This is not a coincidence. It's part of the phenomenology, and it's part part of what you should be expecting to go on as you start to deal with us. Does that make any sense? Um, what should you be expecting, sorry? You, you should always be expecting that um, there's going to be difficult contradictions that are based on, for instance, that another scientist will have a set of experiences, a whole range of experiences that you haven't had, and therefore the evidentiary stream they have to rationalize 
is not the same as the evidentiary stream you have to rationalize. So certain propositions may be easier for you to hold than they would be for me. I think Do you think that there are propositions that are universally um, held? Can I just chime in and say um, good night, everybody? Yeah. Yep. You're out here, Brendan? Right. Yeah, I got to go. All right. Hey, brother. Good, good chatting with you. Yeah, you yeah. too. Catch you later, man. Well, we'll finish uh, another time. We will we never finish. Talking about we'll, a, maybe we won't finish. Talking we'll about a, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. continue. And I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it's a good I, I am looking forward to it. Right. What's your so, philosophical outlook on like on life in Sing? On life, um, I, I'm an absolute individualist. Which is, <laughs> um, you know, it's difficult to explain in summary form. I could explain mm. it to you at length later on. All right. So, well, uh, Joshua, I probably am too. I, I, I'm not sure what it means, but it sounds like something I probably am. No, so, I'm I, and, and I. I, I'm, I so I would have to say with Matthew, I'm in agreement on this one. I don't think we have much choice to some degree. This is not the kind of world where uh, very much complexity is allowed. So it's like you either live in a complexity that's internal to your understanding, or you don't get to live in it at all. And that's not much of a choice. I'm, that's I'm a still... fascinating remark. It is very interesting. <laughs>